Call and pay. J.N. Holmes, the Lion real estate broker, the best in central New York, having done a large amount of business, desires to settle up, clear the boards, and open new books on the 1st of January next. All persons indebted to him are requested, and duly authorized, to call and pay him. The next intimation will most likely be on a printed slip of paper. He has just now three genteel houses in the fourth ward to rent at $12, $17, and $30 a month. He has some very good bargains for somebody just now in houses and lots, vacant lots and farms for sale, some on long time. Call and see him at number 8 South Salina Street, Syracuse, New York, and he will do you good. He is a friend to the poor, a sympathizer with the oppressed, a right-hand man to the rich, and humane to all. If he does anything wrong, he does it in a moment of uncontrollable frenzy and is not responsible. Go and see J.N. Holmes. I the air with the greatest of A daring young man on the Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 8. What'd you think of that ad at the top? Pretty nutty, huh? Especially that last sentence. If he does anything wrong, he does it in a moment of uncontrollable frenzy and is not responsible. At first, I thought it was nothing but that, just a nutty bit of random fluff that he threw in there at the end to get a little bit of attention. But I've read enough of these ads to realize that there might have been more to it than that. Turns out I was right. I went back to FultonHistory.com and ran a search for Syracuse newspapers published in 1868 with the phrase, Uncontrollable Frenzy. I got five or ten hits, almost all of which pertained to the Cole Hiscock murder case, and I smacked myself on the forehead because I knew about this. This has been in the papers in early 1868 because it was a really sensational case. This guy, George W. Cole, was a physician practicing in Syracuse. He signed up for the Union Army when the war broke out and returned to Syracuse when he was mustered out in 1866. He eventually figured out that Hiscock had violated his wife while he was away at the war, or at least so she told him. Cole went to Albany with a gun, confronted Hiscock at the Sandwich Hotel, and popped a cap in his ass. 150 years ago right now, Cole is imprisoned and will be for a number of months. The trial isn't till later in this year. If you follow the link in the show notes to the companion blog post, you'll see a slideshow at the top. The ad that I just read has the date Saturday, December 12th. Scroll down and you'll see this excerpt from the Cole Hiscock trial 
from a Syracuse Daily Standard edition of December 5th, 1868, exactly one week before that ad. This bit refers to James T. Brady, the defense attorney. As the district attorney had stated his belief, he, Mr. B., would give his, and it is that when Hiscock fell, he met a deserved fate, and that the act was committed by the prisoner while in a state of uncontrollable frenzy. So get a load of this. Everybody in town must have been talking about that Cole Hiscock murder case and laughing about that uncontrollable frenzy defense. And this real estate agent, J.N. Holmes, gets an idea. Hey, I can take advantage of this situation. I can make a funny joke about it in my ad, get a little attention, maybe get a few more people in my office. I love this. I find this delightful. And I'm not sure if there's anybody out there who can understand my delight. The best way I can think of to explain it is to reference an event from a couple of years ago. Do you remember hearing about the quote-unquote alien megastructure star? What happened was this star in the constellation of Cygnus, KIC 8462852, also known as Tabby's star, got famous when some citizen scientists noticed periodic fluctuations in the light coming from it. Now, if memory serves, they had examined the light output from something like 250,000 stars. In any event, it was a massive data set, and this was only the second time they had observed anything remotely like these periodic light fluctuations. This was exciting, especially for people who liked science fiction, who said, hey, this is exactly the type of light output we would see if an advanced alien civilization built a megastructure, such as a Dyson Swarm, around that star. Now, I know as well as anyone how foolish it is to jump to the conclusion that aliens are responsible for some newly observed phenomenon. But I'll admit, I had a big old nerd chubby over the thought of a Dyson Swarm being discovered within my lifetime. And I remember thinking at the time, yes, this is almost certainly a natural phenomenon that we've never seen before. But so what? Even if we're not looking at an alien megastructure, this is an amazing time to be alive. Just think about it. Tabby's star is about 1,280 light years away. That means that the light we're observing from that star now left the vicinity about half a century before the Vikings raided Lindisfarne. That's amazing that I get to know that, that I'm alive at a time when our accumulated knowledge and tools allow us to know that something weird is going on around that incomprehensibly distant star. It feels like an honor. It feels like a privilege. And I go back to that word. It feels delightful. And that's similar to how I felt when I figured out that J.N. Holmes wasn't just making a ridiculous non sequitur. He was making a not-too-bad joke about a contemporary murder trial. And he was doing it in a way that seems so familiar to my modern sensibilities that it took my breath away. And I get to figure this out. I have the tools lying before me, provided by great people like Tom Trenisky, where I can go and dig and uncover this wonderful little nugget of information. It's a delight. 
And guess what? Despite all of my effusiveness, that's not even why I chose that ad. I didn't even discover any of that until I had already chosen J.N. Holmes' real estate ads for this episode. And if you pay attention, you'll know why. So, again, we're looking at the Syracuse mayoral election of 1868. If you haven't listened to the first two parts of this series, I recommend going back and starting with episode 5, which is part 1. Last time we left off on February 15, 1868, and I said we were going to look into John A. Green's military career. Why am I doing that? Well, let's go back to episode 5, part 1 of this series. The journal had this to say, John A. Green was the soldier's enemy, persistently and unqualifiedly, and kept up a fire in the rear that prolonged the war and cost thousands of invaluable lives and millions of dollars. So I got curious about that. What did that refer to, keeping up a fire in the rear? Were they just talking about what he had printed in the courier, or did he literally serve in the military, keeping up a fire. Now, in the most recent episode, we saw that the Courier, John A. Green's newspaper, said this, We can consistently vote for General Green, who, at the time when war raged the fiercest, accepted a commission from the commander-in-chief of the military forces of the state of New York, and in the space of a few weeks reorganized the 24th Brigade into such a state of proficiency and condition that it was held in readiness for any emergency that might be required of it by the commander-in-chief, and was quoted to be then, as it is now, one of the finest military organizations in the state of New York. Huh. So, there's definitely opposite spins going on here. Uh, according to the Courier, John A. Green did serve in the military. Not only that, he took command of the 24th Brigade and whipped it into shape. Now understand, I'm named after a man who died of gangrene three days after taking a Vichy French bullet during the Battle of St. Cloud in North Africa on November 10th, 1942. So military service means something to me. So... When I read this, I thought, well, maybe the journal and the standard are being unfair to him, maligning his legitimate military command. Wanting to find the real story, I went digging. And what I found was mind-blowing. This guy, John A. Green, was highly influential, not only at the state, but at the national level. Before I tell you that story, though, here's a brief word from our sponsor. J.N. Holmes, Real Estate Broker. Number 8, South Salina Street, Syracuse, New York, has 257 farms, houses, and lots, and vacant lots to sell and rent, also takes care of property, collects rents, etc. And we're back. Now, to understand John A. Green's military career, it turns out you have to understand his political career. I'm going to go back to 1858. This is from the book Sherman's Forgotten General, Henry W. Slocum, by Brian C. Melton. At some point after returning to Syracuse, Slocum became active in the local Republican Party. New York was a very busy, passionate theater for politics during this era, 
From 1840 to 1860, the state produced a mean voter turnout of 74.5%, the fourth highest of any northern state. The political atmosphere of the time would have attracted Slocum to the Republicans, even if he did not agree with the anti-Southern views of their more radical members. As Michael Holt noted, by 1860, the Republicans were seen as the Northern Party in favor of union and against slavery. In New York and elsewhere, they exploited this to build a winning party capable of defeating the fragmented Democrats. This meant that by 1858, Republican opposition to slavery was often no longer ideological and did not have to entail any beliefs in absolute or total racial equality in the North or South. Republicans simply united on the primacy of the Union and the need to limit slavery's spread, a cause that everyone from Western racists to radicals could support. Slocum's political views fit comfortably in this very wide berth. Meanwhile, the local Democrats, led by John A. Green, owner of the Syracuse Daily Courier, and Thomas Alvord, the Democratic Speaker of the New York Assembly in 1857, had a problem. By the middle of the 1850s, the Democratic Party as a whole was so fragmented it might not be able to mount a successful resistance to the upstarts. The Republicans had swept through Onondaga after their rise in 1856, threatening Greens and Alvord's comfortable positions in the county. In fact, by the end of 1857, Greene's own paper had sarcastically declared Onondaga the citadel of black republicanism in the wake of a series of Republican victories. In the coming months, Green's organ bitterly fought the newcomers, but even as it insisted that the Republican Party seems to be by the ears and falling out all around, Green knew that something else must be done. As the election drew near, the Syracuse Democrats knew they needed to ensure that at least one of their men made it into office where he could then promote Syracuse's salt and canal interests and likely lean them in a way beneficial to Green himself. Things had not gone all that well for Green in particular in recent years, with a mortgage holder from New York repossessing a good deal of property from him in 1857. A man in the assembly could certainly do his part to assuage Green's woes. Green tapped Alvord to run for the seat from the 2nd Assembly District of Syracuse. They then approached John L. Schoolcraft of the Republican State Central Committee with a proposition. If Schoolcraft could arrange for a straw man to face Alvord in Syracuse, they would assure Schoolcraft a thousand-vote majority in Syracuse for Republican gubernatorial candidate Edwin D. Morgan. They asked for an unknown Syracuse Republican, Henry Slocum, to be placed on the ballot against Alvord. Slocum had returned to the county less than two years before. Alvord was the incumbent and a well-known, established businessman and politician. They thus expected it to be a sure victory for Alvord. So at least as early as 1857, Green had become a power player not only in Syracuse but in New York state politics. Historic headlines will return after this message. Real Estate J.N. Holmes, the old and well-known real estate broker of this city, may now be found in his office from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. and from 7 to 8 in the evening. He buys and sells real estate. He rents houses and collects rents and other monies and pays over, takes charge of property, keeps it in repair, sells vacant lots, 
has some now, very cheap. Also, houses and lots. Gives good titles, with easy terms. Everybody who deals with him makes money. He gives the slices, and takes the crumbs. Makes loans, raises money, also invests money for people. Draws wills, deeds, bonds, and mortgages, etc. Reasonable, and for the poor, at half price. All who wish to make money, call at his office first, and let him prove his words. He is now selling farms, and having nearly sold out, he wants twenty-five more farms to sell immediately, and seventy-five more houses and lots for customers. He is sound, reliable, has experience, and is a good businessman. Call and see him at number 8 South Salina Street, Syracuse, New York. Welcome back to the show. Continuing with John A. Green's political career, we're skipping ahead to January 30th, 1861. Here are some excerpts from a Syracuse Daily Journal article about an abolitionist convention in Syracuse that was suppressed through mob violence. Mr. John C. Hunt, a Democratic ward politician who has attached his political fortunes to the John A. Green national democracy, read the following resolutions. Whereas it is the duty of all good citizens of these United States, without distinction of party, to cultivate amicable feelings with and amongst each other, rather than to promote discord and to excite hatred, and believing that at this particular juncture of national affairs, it is unwise, unjust, and unpatriotic to agitate the question of the abolition of involuntary servitude. And while we are not for abridging the constitutional right of freedom of speech, but on the contrary desire it, and wishing hereby to give, by freedom of speech and of the press, an expression of the sentiments of a large majority of the citizens of this city, therefore be it resolved that we have too long allowed a few persons in our city to misrepresent us abroad by sending forth to the world, by their resolutions and proceedings, adopted by a very small assemblage, their abolition sentiments as the approved sentiments of this community. Resolved that we accuse the engineers, aiders, and abettors of the Underground Railroad of hypocrisy and inconsistency in claiming for themselves freedom of speech under the Constitution while they are deliberately violating its express provision. The calls for speakers were renewed. Green, Orcutt, Knoxon, Boz, Hunt, O'Grady, and others being prominently named. A long-winded harangue was then made by Mr. W. W. Green, an attaché of the Syracuse Post Office, whose pro-slavery sentiments were highly palatable to the great body of his hearers. At this time, large accessions had been made to the audience. There was an interruption of the chairman's remarks, and he could not proceed. Dr. Pease and others stated that Luke McKenna and Green were interrupters. So that's four times that the name Green showed up in that article about anti-abolition agitators. Note that not all of them refer to John A. Green. At least one of them refers to W.W. Green. That's the name that shows up at the masthead of the Daily Courier, at least part of the time. So I think there may be some historical confusion between John A. Green and W.W. Green. Judging from the digging I've done, W.W. Green and John A. Green were cousins. 
and the way W.W. Green talked about slavery in this article, it sounds like the two of them were two peas in a pod. Now let's jump forward to October 1st, 1861, and look at an article from the Syracuse Daily Journal. Pay attention to how the writer associates Green with the Courier. Liquor Dealers Convention The State Convention of Liquor Dealers is to convene in Syracuse today. What particular object is to be gained by the assemblage, we are unable to guess from the language of a circular which a gentleman showed us the other day. The paper has no signature, and the gentleman who received it, a leading brewer, could not tell who sent it to him. By the wording of the circular, it was apparently intended to get up a panic about a prohibitory law, but as some coarse abuse of black Republicans was inserted, we surmised that the getters up of the movement have some political design in view, not connected in any way with the liquor trade, and this idea is strengthened by the fact that the circular was issued from the office of the Syracuse Courier, Johnny Green's organ. It is hard to believe that anybody anticipates a serious movement on the part of the temperance men to push through a constitutional amendment forbidding the sale of liquors in this state, and harder still to see what possible connection the black Republicans, as a party, can have with the matter. Johnny won't make a great deal out of his convention, we fancy. Rochester Democrat So as early as 1861... People in Rochester consider the name John A. Green to be synonymous with the courier. (sighs) Well, folks, I'd avoid it if I could, but I'm afraid it's that time. We have to have that conversation about Horatio Seymour. But first, a word from our sponsor. J.N. Holmes, the licensed real estate agent, has commenced his great annual real estate sales. Remember, he looks to the interest of both parties in a trade. He gives good titles, is a thorough businessman, the policy of buying houses to live in is good, the policy of renting is bad. The said Holmes has a large amount of property to sell and rent. He also collects rents for other parties. He has some choice bargains in farms and also in houses and lots. Office, number 8, South Salina Street, Syracuse. By particular request, he will be in his office evenings from 7 to 8 o'clock until May 1st, so as to accommodate laborers and others. All right, let's talk Horatio Seymour. I'm going to read you a couple of different perspectives on him because they're necessary to understand just what a rabid Democrat he was. Pay special attention to the stuff about the New York City draft riots because that's going to be relevant later. This is from A Political History of New York State by Homer Adolph Stebbins, page 174. Harper's Weekly, October 19, 1867, page 659. Horatio Seymour was the spokesman of the party in the convention, as he has been its chief for some years. He was the chosen representative of the spirit of reaction, which is to undo the work of the war. And who is this representative? It is the same Horatio Seymour who, in December 1860, at the notorious Tweedle Hall Convention, tried to defeat the government in advance and secure the triumph of rebellion. 
it is the same Horatio Seymour who declared that if it came to a choice between the Union and slavery, he was for letting the Union go and saving slavery. It is the same Horatio Seymour whom the rebellion made governor in 1862 and who appointed John A. Green, known only as one of the most malignant of copperheads, military commander of a large part of the state, for what purpose it is not difficult to imagine. It is the same Horatio Seymour who, in the New York Academy of Music on July 4, 1863, when Lee was pressing into Pennsylvania, taunted the government with its failure, asked contemptuously for the great victories that had been promised, and warned it that the mob could be lawless as well as the government. It is the same Horatio Seymour who, when the mob of New York obeyed the word he had given them and ravaged the city, stood before them at the city hall and, calling them, still flushed and reeking with the wanton and barbarous massacre of helpless men, women, and children, my friends, promised them that the laws should be executed, but that he would try to have them changed as his friends desired. And finally, it is the same Horatio Seymour who presided over the last national convention of the Democratic Party, which joyfully declared the war a failure and stimulated the expiring rebellion to one more struggle. And the following is from the page for Horatio Seymour on the website Mr. Lincoln and New York. Biographer Mitchell wrote, Seymour took his spectacular victory with decorum, Those who heard and read his speech at Utica on November 6th knew that he realized the darkness of the day which lay before him and the heavy responsibility which he would have to shoulder during the next two years. His task was the same as that of Lincoln. He must take care lest he perish between the two extremes of opinion. He would live and work at the center of a triangle of hostile abolitionists, secessionists, and copperheads. Suddenly, Seymour was the most important Democrat in the country, a fact immediately recognized by President Lincoln. In December 1862, Thurlow Weed was at the White House when President Lincoln asked him to deliver a message to Governor Horatio Seymour of New York. Governor Seymour has greater power just now for good than any other man in the country. He can wield the Democratic Party into line, put down rebellion, and preserve the government. Tell him for me that if he will render this service to his country, I shall cheerfully make way for him as my successor. Thurlow Weed said he went to Albany and repeated the conversation to Governor Seymour. Seymour, however, said he wanted to act as an irreconcilable and conscientious partisan. This is from the Wikipedia entry for Horatio Seymour. He opposed the Lincoln administration's institution of the military draft in 1863 on constitutional grounds, an act which led many to question his support for the war. Finally, his efforts to conciliate the rioters during the New York draft riots of July 1863 was used against him by the Republicans, who accused him of treason and support for the Confederacy. So Horatio Seymour was one of the most potent Lincoln adversaries, And among other things, that Harper's Weekly article from 1867 named him as the man who appointed John A. Green. Wanting to verify that as much as I could, I did some digging, and I found the Annual Report of the Adjutant General of the State of New York, 1865. Sure enough, there's an entry that gives his commission date as June 10th, 1863, right in the middle of Seymour's second governorship. 
So I see no reason not to take that Harper's Weekly statement at face value and accept that, yes, John A. Green was appointed by Horatio Seymour. And that tells you one hell of a lot about the character of his military command. J.N. Holmes, the great real estate broker, has farms and houses and lots to rent and sell on reasonable terms. Come and see him. Office number 8, South Salina Street, Syracuse, New York. All right, enough setup. Now for the intrigue. This is from When the Rebels Invaded Vermont on the New York Times blog. At about 3 p.m. on Wednesday, October 19, 1864, a 21-year-old Kentuckian stepped onto the porch of the American Hotel in St. Albans, Vermont, and announced, In the name of the Confederate States, I take possession of St. Albans. He wasn't joking. Lieutenant Bennett Young's bold action backed by a brace of Navy Colt revolvers and 20 equally well-armed Confederate compatriots, began a half-hour scare party, during which the rebels robbed three banks, shot three men, failed to set the town ablaze, and stole enough horses to enable them to escape, just minutes ahead of two armed posses. The St. Albans raid is often cast as a footnote in Civil War history, the northernmost Confederate action during the conflict, but it was intended to be much more. As one of the conspirators involved in planning the raid wrote, St. Albans will merely be the starting point of a system of warfare which will carry desolation all along the frontier. There will be war to the knife and to the hilt. The towns will burn and be pillaged. To read the rest of the article, follow the link in the show notes. But, long story short, the raid didn't amount to much in the long run. They failed to set fire to the town because it had rained the previous day. However, the raid did, for a time, cause fear and paranoia in the Northeast, especially along the Canadian border. Jump cut to nine days later. This is from Mr. Lincoln and New York, Election Day, 1864. General Dix issued orders on October 28th, according to historian Sidney David Brummer, that he had received satisfactory information that rebel agents in Canada designed to send into the United States large numbers of refugees, deserters, and enemies of the government to vote at the approaching election, and that he was determined to guard the purity of the elective franchise against the threatened outrages. Every such person was to be arrested, Provost marshals were directed to exercise all possible vigilance, and all persons from the insurgent states were required forthwith to report themselves for registry. In a letter of October 29th, Senator Edwin D. Morgan wrote to Stanton both at the request of others and in accordance with his own judgment, desiring that 3,000 troops be sent to New York immediately. Stanton had already urged on Grant the advisability of such a move. Dick Nolan, biography of General Benjamin Butler, wrote, As military affairs settled down to routine, the Lincoln administration had one further chore for Butler to perform. There were rumors that Copperhead conspirators and rebel spies proposed to disrupt the election balloting in New York, so Butler was dispatched there with 5,000 troops to keep the peace. Ah, but before we tell that story of Butler in New York, we need to tell why he was there in the first place. That order by Dix was on October 28th. 
On October 29th, John A. Green issued the following. Headquarters, Frontier Defense, Syracuse, October 29th, 1864, General Orders No. 2. Pursuant to an order of His Excellency the Governor and Commander-in-Chief, issued on the 12th day of August last, the General Commanding assumed command of the district lying along the Canadian frontier, extending from the east line of the county of Monroe to the boundary line of the state of Vermont, and embracing the counties of Wayne, Cayuga, Oswego, Onondaga, Jefferson, St. Lawrence, Franklin, and Clinton. The general commanding now again enjoins it upon all subordinate officers within the said district to exercise a special vigilance in guarding against any hostile invasion of this state by persons in the Canadian provinces, to the end that the peace of the state may be preserved from violation or disturbance. A state election is to be held on the 8th of November next, and it has been suggested that evil-disposed persons across the border may deem this a favorable occasion to pass the frontier for the purpose of depredation upon the property of our citizens. Officers of the National Guard within this department are therefore reminded that unusual vigilance to intercept all such attempts will therefore be required. But persons peacefully coming to or attending the polls at the election are not to be interfered with under any pretext whatever. The election is to be held solely under the civil authority of the state, and is regulated by state laws, carefully framed and eminently adapted to prevent, as well as punish, all improper and fraudulent voting. The people of the state in the exercise of their sovereignty and by their constitution, have regulated the right of suffrage, and this right can only be challenged and tried before the judges and inspectors of election. No military interference can be permitted. The general commanding recognizes danger to the public peace in the proposed attempt of a major general holding his commission under the federal government to take under his care and supervision within the said district the election to be held as aforesaid. For this contemplated interference there is no necessity, authority, or excuse. The federal government is charged with no duty or responsibility whatever relating to an election to be held in the state of New York. Officers of the National Guard in this department will therefore vigilantly repress all attempts to disturb the peace, will do their utmost to preserve order and quiet on the day of the election, and, if necessary, will prevent all interference with the right of any person or persons peacefully to attend at the places where the polls shall be held. By order of John A. Green, Jr., Brigadier General, Commanding. So did you catch all that? Green is responding to the fear and paranoia about rebel incursions from Canada, but he's also saying that the real threat here is the federal interference of a state election. He's saying that Dix's troops are going to cause more trouble than any possible rebel interference. Shit, meet fan. There were no Syracuse newspapers on Sundays, but on Monday morning, the 31st, sure enough, the Syracuse, New York Daily Courier printed John A. Green's General Orders No. 2. The next day, November 1st, it appeared in the New York Times under the header, A Characteristic Order from One of Governor Seymour's Brigadier Generals. So that's yet another contemporary source saying that John A. Green is acting at the behest of Governor Seymour. 
On that same day, Major General Benjamin Butler in Virginia gets orders to report to Secretary of War Stanton. He immediately orders his boat cold up and he steams northward to Washington. Butler arrives at the Secretary of War's office the next morning, November 2nd. Stanton hands him a thick bundle of papers, says, Here, read these. I'll be with you in a minute. Now here's Butler's account from his autobiography. I carefully read the papers. They were the reports of his confidential agents and detectives and of prominent, loyal men in the city and state as to the condition of affairs there. They contained matter sufficiently alarming, but, as is always the case, exaggerated. In substance, they stated that there was an organization of troops which was to be placed under command of Fitz John Porter, that there was to be inaugurated in New York a far more widely extended and far better organized riot than the draft riot in July 1863, that the whole vote of the city of New York was to be deposited for McClellan at the election to be held just one week from that date, that the Republicans were to be driven from the polls, that there were several thousand rebels in New York who were to aid in the movement, and that Brigadier General John A. Green, who was known to be the confidential friend of the governor, was to be present, bringing some forces from the interior of the state to take part in the movement. Butler's all, is this shit for real? And Stanton's all, yeah, as far as we can tell. Now let me stop right there and tell you, it is worth reading this whole long-ass excerpt from Butler's autobiography that I posted on the companion blog, because the language is wonderfully florid. Now, I'm not sure that Butler is a reliable narrator, because he comes across as almost too shrewd and capable. But anyway, it's a great read. Now, on that same day, November 2nd, a man in Syracuse took that Courier article containing Green's General Order No. 2 and sent it to Secretary of State William H. Seward. There's a lot packed into a couple of lines here. Check it out. Dear Sir, Enclosed, find a remarkable order of Brigadier General John A. Green of this city, one of Governor Seymour's generals of the National Guard, The provost marshal has just sent a copy to General Dix. We hope the latter will not resign on account of it. Yours, respectfully, J.N. Holmes, Number 8, South Salina Street. P.S. There is great reason to fear that President Lincoln will be assassinated very soon. Caution is the parent of safety. J.N.H. Second P.S. The within order is taken from the courier and union of this city, General Green's organ. The meanest print in the state of New York, if not in the United States. H. Now, let's revisit our buddy General Butler, whom we left at Secretary of War Stanton's office. He reached Jersey City on November 3rd, and on November 4th, he had a really fun encounter with one Judge Henry Clay Dean, who had supposedly made a speech saying that Butler would be hung if he attempted to march up Broadway. Butler sends word to Dean, letting him know that he's in town. Dean, of course, shits his pants and comes running. Butler says to him in his most genteel elocution, Hey, dude, I heard you've been talking shit about me. Dean says, oh, oh, no, I've, I've been misrepresented. Butler says, oh, good, then you'll be happy to issue an explanation. And he says, oh, yes, yes, yes. 
That same day, General Butler reported to General Dix, and as he's recounting their conversation about his new command, he says, I had been expressly cautioned by the Secretary of War against the machinations of General John A. Green. On the next day, November 5th, Butler sends the following telegram to Secretary of War Stanton. I desire to issue the following portion of an order about Brigadier General John A. Green as commander of the District of New York. General Dix objects not on account of any difference as to jurisdiction between us, but because he thinks we have no power to touch Green and desires me to ask you. Will you sanction it? There can be no military organization in any state known to the laws save the militia and armies of the United States. The President is the constitutional commander-in-chief of the militia and army of the U.S. Therefore, where in any portion of the U.S. an officer of superior rank is detailed to command all other military officers in that district, must report to and be subordinate to him. Therefore, all persons exercising any military authority in this district will at once report to these headquarters for orders. A military order purporting to be issued by Brigadier General John A. Green is countermanded and revoked, and Brigadier General Green, if exercising any military command, will forthwith report to these headquarters and any attempt to exercise military authority without so reporting will be summarily punished as willful disobedience of orders. I will wait for answer at the telegraph office. Troops are beginning to arrive. Stanton replied to that telegram on the same day. Your telegram has been submitted to the consideration of the President, and all action upon the subject matter will be suspended until his instructions are received. That same day, President Lincoln gets the telegram and replies, I think this might lie over till morning. The tendency of the order, it seems to me, is to bring on a collision with the state authority which I would rather avoid, at least until the necessity for it is more apparent than it yet is. A. Lincoln, November 5, 1864. I'm not sure why Stanton took two days to pass this along, but on November 7th, he telegraphed Butler, The President thinks it expedient to avoid precipitating any military collision between the United States forces and the militia of the state of New York. And as General Dix, the commanding officer of the department, does not approve of the order proposed by you to be issued, in reference to the militia of the state and Brigadier General Green, the president is of the opinion that it had better not be issued. If Green, under any color of pretense, should undertake to resist the military authority of the United States, he may then be dealt with as circumstances require without any general order that may become the subject of abstract discussion. So, to recap, Butler says to Stanton, Yo, I want to put the hammer down on this motherfucker green. Cool? Stanton says, Uh, let me ask Lincoln. Lincoln says, Nah. And Stanton relays that back to Butler. Well, now we have to leave General Butler, and I do that reluctantly because this chapter is fascinating. There's this bit about a Confederate merchant trying to raise the price of 
gold to hurt the election in New York City that I don't really understand. He takes care of that by making a smooth deal with this guy. He stations boats full of Union soldiers in New Jersey to get around the law that states that any soldiers whose votes had been cast in the field who were in New York on Election Day wouldn't be counted, etc., etc. It's, it's a fascinating read. Anyway, let's get back to the kerfuffle that Green had kicked off with his General Orders Number 2. On November 7th, the same day that Stanton got back to Butler, Butler sent a message to Stanton saying, among other things, All will be quiet here. The state authorities are sending from the arsenal in New York arms and ammunition to Mr. John A. Green, Brigadier General at Buffalo, and I am powerless to prevent it. The next day, John A. Kennedy, Superintendent, Headquarters, City of New York, sent the following to Butler. Sir, by one of my detectives, corroborated by a member of the staff of Major General Sanford, I learn that no arms or ammunition have been sent from the state arsenal in 7th Avenue into the interior of the state since July last, when a large quantity of both were transferred to the custody of General John C. Green. Obviously, he meant John A. Green there. The fact that there was all this buzz among the high military command concerning John A. Green shows you how much power he wielded thanks to Seymour. So in any event, the New York City elections passed quietly. If you believe the autobiography of General Butler and the general military chatter from that time, that happened in no small part because of Butler and despite Green. A rare bargain. J.N. Holmes offers for sale three acres of land, being in the village of Baldwinsville, a splendid lot with a valuable water power sufficient for seven run of stone, title perfect, price $5,500. Terms easy. It stands on the main street. Call and see him. Number 8 South Salina Street, Syracuse, New York. Now, after recounting all that trouble that Green caused for Lincoln and his chain of command, I need to share something with you if for no other reason than the delicious irony. We're moving forward a couple of months to the spring of 1865, the wake of of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. This is from the Syracuse Courier and Union, Tuesday, April 25th. Reception of the funeral train. At the meeting at the City Hall last evening to arrange for demonstrations of respect to the funeral train of the late president, T.B. Fitch, Esquire, was called to the chair and F.A. Marsh appointed secretary. The firing of minute guns and tolling of bells during the arrival and departure of the trains, and adorning the depot with national flags and drapery, was thought advisable, and a committee consisting of W.G. Lapham, Z.L. Beebe, H.L. DeGuid, C.P. Clark, William A. Sweet, and S.P. Rust was appointed to carry it out and confer with General Green as to any military demonstration to be had. And this is again from the Courier, April 26, 1865. Reception of the Funeral Train The following order has been issued by Brigadier General John A. Green, Jr., Headquarters, 24th Brigade, NG, 
Syracuse, April 24th. Special Order Number 4. The remains of Abraham Lincoln will pass through the city of Syracuse between the hours of 11 and 12 o'clock at night on the 27th instant, and that the proper military honors may be observed, it is ordered that Captain Jacob Brand, commanding Battery A, cause to be fired minute guns, commencing when the train of cars containing the body shall enter the city limits, and ceasing when the train shall leave the city limits. It is supposed that thirty minutes will cover the time embraced in this order. By order of John A. Green, Jr., Brigadier General, Many of the residents on Railroad Street contemplate decorating and illuminating their buildings this evening. J.N. Holmes, the real estate agent, offers some excellent bargains for sale in houses and lots, from $500 up to eight, or four, five, or six thousand dollars. He can sell a good new one and a half story house, lot two by nine rods, with a new and commodious barn in 10 minutes from the post office on Montgomery Street for $2,250. Title perfect. The most of the money can lie on long time. It will make a good home, house in perfect repair. Come and see him at 8 South Salina Street, and he will do you good. Also, a very desirable place, Central, for $4,500. Moving ahead to September 11th, 1865, we look in on the Lockport Daily Journal and Courier, Lockport, New York. The Veritable John Green The Albany Journal pertinently inquires if one of the chief fuglemen at the late Democratic Convention was General John A. Green of Syracuse. Is this the same John A. Green who found fault with the rebel General Pemberton for surrendering to General Grant at Vicksburg, who threw up his hat for Jeff Davis in 61, who, as editor of the infamous Syracuse Courier, has been the consistent defender of secession and the foul-mouthed traducer of the government and its brave defenders in the field? Is he the same man who threatened last fall to call out his militia to resist the federal authority and bring the horrors of civil war to the homes and hearthstones of the North? Or is it some other man, bearing the same name, wearing the same clothes, and rejoicing in the same prodigal expanse of shirt-collar? Now that was in Lockport, so clearly Green's exploits were public knowledge across the state. J.N. Holmes, the licensed real estate agent, has commenced his great annual real estate sales. Remember, he looks to the interest of both parties in a trade. He gives good titles, is a thorough businessman, the policy of buying houses to live in is good, the policy of renting is bad. The said Holmes has a large amount of property to sell and rent. He also collects rents for other parties. He has some choice bargains in farms and also in houses and lots. Office, number 8, South Salina Street, Syracuse. By particular request, he will be in his office evenings from 7 to 8 o'clock until May 1st, so as to accommodate laborers and others. Now I'm going to move forward to the next month, October 28, 1865, and read you one last article, 
This is from Harper's Weekly, and it mentions green twice. Jonah. Routed everywhere in the states that have voted, terribly defeated even in the chief city of New Jersey, the last flickering hope of the party that prayed God to preserve the country when Mr. Johnson became president is the state of New York. Here they have flung everything overboard, except Jonah, and he will swamp the ship. The party goes into the election under the lead of John A. Green, editor of one of the most notorious Copperhead journals in the country, who nominated General Slocum at Albany, and of Horatio Seymour, who appeared with General Slocum as his sponsor at the meeting where he first spoke, and who is the most unmitigated Jonah with which any party craft ever put to sea. Cutting to the last paragraph, The question is thus narrowed to a point. If the platforms of the two parties in New York are so similar, which party can the people of the state most safely trust? Horatio Seymour and the Woods and John A. Green and their party, or the great triumphant host which elected Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson, which finished the war victoriously against the steady and unscrupulous politicians who now ask for power, and which maintains its shining ranks thus far stronger and more united than ever from Maine to California. J. N. Holmes, the agent, reports the following sales recently made by him. The Johnson Farm of 60 acres in Kirkville at $90 an acre to Randolph D. and Henry D. Lamb. Part cash down. A farm of 41 acres in Sullivan, Madison County, for $8,000. A farm of 100 acres in Oswego County at $50 an acre. House and lot on Hawley Street for $6,000. House and lot on Chenard Street at $3,000, cash down. House and lot in the 4th Ward at $1,500 to David Jones. Mr. Holmes has more property to sell. See his advertisement in another column. To close this episode out, it seems appropriate to take a visit to Oakwood Cemetery. This is from the book Syracuse Landmarks, an AIA Guide to Downtown and Historic Neighborhoods. General John A. Green, Mausoleum, 1866, Section 25. Architect, Horatio Nelson White, Syracuse. Sculptor, John C. Esser, Syracuse. A Utica native, Green made his riches in the wholesale grocery business in Syracuse and served as a brigadier general in the Civil War. Local architect Horatio Nelson White designed the mausoleum, which cost over $25,000 in 1866. With elaborate stonework by John C. Esser, it features boldly scrolled Flemish stepped gables and is the cemetery's most flamboyant structure. White experimented with the use of tapering pilasters at the entrance and corners, and later used them to detail his S.A. and K. 1869 and Gridley 1867 buildings in downtown Syracuse. From the green plot, there is a good view south down the slope to Oakwood's Midland Avenue, one of the principal routes through the cemetery. So that's the summary that Green gets in that historical guide to Syracuse. He served as a brigadier general in the Civil War. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem right to me. And this illustrates exactly what I mean every time I say, seek 
context. Context is everything. And it's not just a matter of evaluating someone from within their own historical context, although that's at the core of it. It's also a matter of recovering what gets lost amid the condensing, the generalizing, and the connotations. When you hear he served as a brigadier general in the Civil War, what do you think? If you're anything like me, that conjures up images of untroubled, uncomplicated, unconflicted service. Obviously, the truth is usually murkier than that, but boy, I've seldom seen instances where the truth is so at odds with the images that come to mind when you hear a summary. From my perspective, this guy seems pernicious. Am I violating my own rule about context? I don't know. I just can't see this guy as anything but a scumbag, and maybe that's flawed. The way he used his command seems beyond the pale. Maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't, but after you read some of the sewage that comes gushing out of the courier in the following episodes, you'll understand my position better. By the way, did you catch the significance of J.N. Holmes, real estate agent, this episode's advertiser? He was the guy from Syracuse who sent the courier article to Secretary of State William H. Seward. Speaking of our sponsor, here's one last word from him. Real estate to sell, rent, trade, etc. J.N. Holmes, the great real estate agent, is again in his office to serve the public in buying, selling, trafficking, renting, leasing, repairing, taking care of, collecting rents for houses and lots, farms, etc., and do everything in his line that he can do well. He has just now some excellent bargains. He has a splendid water power to sell in Baldwinsville. This is worthy of the attention of everybody wishing to purchase such property. All business sent him in his line from any part of the state or United States or the Canadas will be promptly attended to. Call or direct to number 8 South Salina Street, Syracuse, New York. Well, I hope I've succeeded in conveying my fascination with the military and political career of John A. Green. Next episode, we'll dive right back into that war of ink between the Syracuse newspapers over the 1868 Syracuse mayoral election. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he stole an away.